Back in 2007, the late Christopher Hitchens, at the time noted and a noted atheist, I, I might say today, since his passing, I would assume a former atheist. But, but Christopher Hitchens, who wrote a lot on the topic of atheism, engaged in a debate with Doug Wilson. Doug Wilson is a pastor and an author uh, over in Idaho. And the question of their debate, was, it, it was printed in, in Christianity Today, the question of their debate was, is Christianity good for the world? That was the question. Is Christianity good for the world? And Christopher Hitchens argued no. Christianity is not good for the world. And, and he argued this on the basis that, that, frankly, Christians cannot claim credit for all the good things that they want to claim credit for. They can't claim credit for love. They, they can't uniquely claim credit for, for the golden rule. They can't uniquely claim credit for, for morality or, or charity. Lots of people do those things. But they do have to claim credit for all the bad things that they've done. Christians are wholly responsible for all the bad things that have come about as a result of Christianity. And, you know, he lists off all sorts of things, prejudice and the Crusades and, you know, the, the, the list goes on and on. As you might imagine, Doug Wilson begged to differ. There was a time when it was taken for granted that Christianity and Christians were useful to the world, that, that, that Christians actually tended to make the world a better place, whether or not you agreed with them and their theology. But these days, in, in a culture and in a world which defines what is good in ways that are increasingly divergent from traditional Christian morality, the answer to the question, is, is Christianity good for the world? The answer to the question is changing. I mean, what's so good from the world's perspective? What's so good about people who, who want to keep people who love each other from marrying each other? What's so good about people who, who seem to want to impose their minority morality on the majority. What's so good about people who who seem to be more associated with the privileges of the rich rather than the needs of the poor? What's so good about about people who in the name of purity promote the fool's errand of abstinence? rather than the more realistic and good goal of preventing disease and unwanted pregnancy? These are the questions that our culture asks about Christians and Christianity today. Of what use are Christians? Of what use are people like that? Now, in, in response to that very real question and that very real pressure coming from culture, a whole new generation of Christians has arisen, emphasizing the church's responsibility to be a voice for the claims of justice, to take up the cause of the poor 
and and those who have been oppressed or, or done wrong by society. And, and honestly, they're exactly right. We, we should be a voice for justice in this world. But I would say to this young generation of Christians, I, I think you are naive to believe that the cause of justice will answer our critics or satisfy the doubters. Because whose justice are we talking about at the end of the day? How long will the world allow us as Christians to stand with them against the injustice of sex trafficking, but against them on the question of same-sex marriage? You see, hypocrisy is a relative term, and it can be wielded by people other than Christians. Hypocrisy turns out to be a two-edged sword. This summer, we've been thinking about our life together as as a church, and we've been using the book of Titus. And this morning, we come to the very climax of the letter. And it turns out it's all about our corporate reputation in the world. What does the world think of us? How do we relate to the world? And, And according to Paul in our passage this morning, we are to be profitable to the world. We're to be of use to everyone. But as we're going to see, as we look at this passage, our use to the world, our profit to the world is less in what we do and more in who we are. So as we consider the passage this morning, I I want you to consider your own life. If you're a member of this church, consider our life together as Henson Baptist Church and, and what it would mean for us to be of use to everyone around us. So turn to Titus chapter three. Titus chapter 3, if you're using a Bible that we've provided in the pews, that's found on page 1,859, 1,859, Titus chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 to 8. If you're not used to using a Bible, the big number on the page is the chapter number. So that you should find the big three. That's the chapter we're going to be in. And then we're going to uh, look at verses 1 to 8, and those are marked out by the small numbers on the page. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, page 1,859 in the Bibles in your pew. Let me read that for us. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, Deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. If you've been following along in the series, at at the end of chapter 2, 
which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, it, it almost feels like he's, he's wrapping up the entire book. He, he summarizes it there, chapter 2, verse 15. These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anyone despise you. At that point, if you're reading along, you expect his closing remarks. But then all of a sudden, it's like he remembers something. And so he doesn't end the letter. He, he, he keeps going. Well, I think actually what's happening is not that he, he all of a sudden remembered something and tacked on like a long PS here in chapter three. I think what's going on is Paul is shifting. He, he's, he's shifting from his teaching about how the gospel should affect our life together inside the church in chapter two. And he gives then a summary of that. And now in chapter three, he shifts to think about how the gospel should affect the way we relate to the outside world. That's what's going on here as we move into chapter three. Now, if you're using uh, an NIV Bible, the, the, the particular translation we know is the New International Version, you've probably got a heading uh, above chapter three that says something like doing what is good. Now, those headings were something that English language editors added when these Bibles were produced. They're not actually part of scripture. And in this case, I actually think it's not so helpful. The section that I just read is framed by the instruction to do what is good. You see that in verse one, be ready to do whatever is good. And you see it again at the end in verse eight, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. So that's, that gives us a framework for sure. But when we then look inside that framework at, at the details of what's going on in these verses, it's apparent that the stress is less on our deeds and more on our character. Less about our philanthropy, more about our humility. To use Paul's language, if I were going to sum up what this passage was about, it's about answering the question, how can we be profitable to everyone? How can we be of use to everyone? And the answer is that we're profitable to the world By being people who've been transformed by God through the gospel. Not what we do, but who we are that is of ultimate use to the world. Now, Paul lays this out in three sections. And this is how we're going to walk through the passage this morning. First, Paul looks at who we are as Christians. That's verses 1 and 2. Then he turns and looks at who we were. That's verse 3. And then third, finally, why we're different. Why we are different. And that's verses four to seven. All right, first, who we are as Christians. Verses one and two. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. The shift from relations inside the community to out, outside the community is, is, is really obvious. Paul here is talking about rulers and authorities, that is the state, you know, government. And he's talking about all men, that, that, that is society at large. And if I could summarize all these various instructions that he packs into these two verses, what I'd say is that Christians are at peace. They are at peace with, with the institutions and then the structures, the authorities around them, And they are at peace with the people around them. 
We're submissive, Paul says, submissive to legitimate government authority. Though our gospel is actually quite revolutionary, we aren't revolutionaries. We, we serve a revolutionary, you might say, a revolutionary God. We ourselves are submissive to legitimate authority. That, that, that word that he uses uh, there in verse 1, uh, to, to be obedient, actually, actually that, that word carries with it the idea of, of seeking to please authority actively seeking to please the authority that is over you. He's not talking about a a kind of mere, bare-bones, conformity, grudgingly, to the law. But but an attitude, an, an active desire to please those that have been placed over us. We're, we're peaceable, he says. Literally, not fighting. That's, that's the word he uses. We're, we're not fighters. Uh, the word that, that, if you're reading the NIV, is, is translated considerate. We're, we're peaceable and considerate. The idea of, of considerate here actually isn't to be polite. Uh, I, I'm a southerner. I grew up in the south. One of the things that my mom drilled into me was to be considerate of others. Basically means, you know, be, be polite uh, when you're in social settings. That's, that's not what Paul's talking about here. He actually means that we should not insist on our every right all the time. We should be willing to yield our rights to others and to do so graciously. We're we're not people who attack with our words, he says. We don't slander. Sometimes we we see the word slander and, and we immediately think of like the legal definitions uh, in, in, in our own in our own culture, and Paul didn't have that in mind at all. He didn't know anything about our culture or our law. And when, when Paul talks about not slandering, he actually uses the word that, that we would translate, if it was about God, to, to not blaspheme. So we're not to blaspheme God. We are not to blaspheme one another. In other words, we're not to speak evil about one another. We're not to speak what is not true. We're not even to speak what we're not sure is true or not. We're, we're not supposed to be out there speculating about what might be going on inside somebody's heart. Uh, even more in this idea of not slandering, not blaspheming, speaking evil of somebody. We're not the kind of people that say what is true to people who don't need to know about it. To, to slander someone is to speak falsely to speak speculatively, or to speak truly with the intent of causing them harm. That's not who we are as Christians. We also don't exalt ourselves. We're not always promoting ourselves. Rather, Paul says, remind them to be humble. This is who Christians are, according to Paul. This is who Christians should be. As as the writer to Hebrews put it, we are those who make every effort to live in peace with all men. Christians are at peace with the structures and the people around us. Now, I need to be clear. To To be at peace with the world does not mean 
that we need to approve of everything the world does. It, it, it does not mean that we have to become quietists and just get out of politics altogether. It, does, it doesn't mean that we can't use politics to work for good change. It, it, it does not mean that we've adopted peace as the world understands peace. You know how the world understands peace. A kind of live and let live tolerance that is ultimately intolerant of any standard other than live and let live tolerance. That, that's, that's the way the world gets to peace, and that's not the kind of peace we're talking about here. When, when it comes to matters of allegiance, when it comes to matters of right and wrong and truth, then, then Christians are not at peace with the world at all because we serve God, and he's our standard. But, but when it comes to matters of how we're going to relate to people, how we're going to relate to the authority that is around us and over us, then at that level, we are people at peace. And, and friends, this should make sense to us. Because as Christians, we are followers of Jesus Christ, the man of peace. Jesus considered others' interests before his own. Always. Je- Jesus sacrificed his own rights for the good of others. Always. Jesus actually submitted himself to authority, even unjust authority, out of his desire to do good for others. And finally, because his kingdom is not of this world. This is what Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 2. As Christians relating to the world, both in its authority and in its society, we are called to imitate Jesus. So I I just need to ask you, particularly if you understand yourself to be a Christian this morning, what keeps you from living at peace with those around you? What keeps you from living at peace with the authority that is over you? I mean, isn't it finally a fear that if you don't look out for yourself, if you don't advance your own interests or, or the interests of your tribe, that you'll lose out, that you'll be taken advantage of? If you're a Christian, what causes you to speak evil, to slander the elected leaders that are over you? What causes you to hold back from doing good toward others that you could do? Isn't it at the end of the day because we are committed finally to to building and advancing our own kingdom rather than God's? As a church, we want to look like these two verses. We want to to be a a community that that seeks to please secular authority in legitimate ways and and, and we're going to do that, I think, best as we are eager to do good to our city, uh, particularly our, our own neighborhood. There, there are lots of ways that we've done this here at Henson Baptist Church. We've been involved in Advent conspiracy where we've, we've, we've uh, cooperated with other churches in the city to give just a monetary gift to the city to do whatever they want with. You know, this last year they used that to, to help fund a shelter for girls being rescued from the, from the sex trade. Uh, we, we, we try to be a good neighbor right here in Buckman. We try to do good to our neighborhood by hosting uh, the farmer's market that way, the farmer's market uh, in our parking lot. Uh, we, 
are deeply involved with our local elementary school, Buckman Elementary School, and, and in fact, the neighborhood at large. These are all great ways in which we're seeking to do good for our city, for our neighbors. Because we are at peace with them. We desire their good. We don't desire evil for them. We don't desire their suffering. We don't desire their judgment. We desire their good. And so we look for opportunities to do that. Now, I wonder if there are other things that we can do, even as a church. You know, recently there was a meeting that we hosted right here in our building. It wasn't our meeting, but we we provided a place for it for for neighbors to get together and talk about Colonel Summers Park and what goes on over at Colonel Summers Park. We are actually one of the largest landowners that border Colonel Summers Park. Now, if you've hung out in Colonel Summers Park, particularly on Monday, which is fun day, uh, you know that a lot of stuff goes on in the park. And a lot of it's a lot of fun and a lot of it's good. A lot of stuff goes on in the park, though, late at night and kind of after hours that's not so good. So as a, as a congregation, are there ways that we can band together with our, with our other neighbors that border the park and see how we can do good? for our city, for our neighborhood. It'd be tempting to approach the question of what happens at Colonel Summers Park merely in terms of our own interests. But of course, that's precisely what we're not supposed to do as Christians. We yield our interests. We are considerate of the needs of others because we desire to do them good and not just do ourselves good. Now, as Christians... The question that I think we need to be asking ourselves is our attitude towards authority. Honestly, conservative Christians don't have a really good rap on this point. If their favored politicians are not in power. We tend to be really excited about the politicians that that get elected when we voted for them. But we tend to be right in there throwing mud. And call in names as soon as the politicians are not the ones that we voted for. Brothers and sisters, you should vote. And you should vote out of your conviction. And then you should submit to the leaders that have been placed over us. And you should demonstrate that submission at the very least by the respect that you accord to the office even if you don't like the person. We can submit to this world's authority, not because we chose it, not not because it's perfect, certainly not because we always agree with it. We can submit to this world's authority because ultimately we're submitted to God. And we know that ultimately God reigns. God wins. And in the end, God will set everything right. So, So we can as far as the authority is legitimate, so long as human authority is not asking us to disobey God, we can submit to human authority. We can put other people's interests ahead of our own because we know that God has our interests. He's taking care of our interests. So we don't have to fight for them. We don't need to tear others down with our speech in order to build ourselves up. 
Because God has already spoken a better word to us. A word of love. A word of peace. Do you see where this is driving? It's not because the world is so easy to live with. It is because of who God is that we can live at peace with others. Because we are at peace with God. Now, if that's true, that's just fundamental truth for our identity as Christians. Why does Paul tell Titus to remind us of these things? Well, well, the answer, I think, is fairly obvious. We need to be reminded of things because we forget things. And friends, we are forgetful of this. We are forgetful that this is who we are precisely because of who we were. And that's the second thing I want to look at, who we were. Look at verse 3. Here's why we forget who we are. Because, verse 3, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Paul could not be more clear about the fact that non-Christians, those outside of Christ, are difficult to live at peace with. But he also couldn't be more clear that at one time, so were we. Every single person in this room was at one time just like verse 3. And any way you slice it, it's not a pretty picture. Outside of Christ, Paul is telling us that life is characterized not by peace, but by personal warfare. We're we're foolish, he said, at at war with God. That's almost always a term that that speaks to our the, the way we're relating to God in the moral universe that he's created. And all of us were foolish at war with God and his government government. We're we're, we're disobedient. Paul uses a very specific word there to to refer to disobedience to authorities, to rulers. And and, and that is us. We, We are at war with any and every authority that crosses our own authority. Unless that authority agrees with our authority. And then we're quite happy to go along with it. But as soon as it disagrees, we don't like it. He says we're envious, spiteful, hateful. And being hated. In other words, we're at war with the people around us. Outside of Christ, we live as if life is a zero-sum game. In every transaction, in every uh, interaction, someone's going to be the winner and someone's going to be the loser. And we want to come out on top. Or at least an even draw. And if we don't, if it looks like we're not going to come out on top... We are ready to bring others down in order to raise ourselves up. And Paul says that all of this characterizes life outside of Christ because we've been deceived. You see that there in verse 3. Deceived and enslaved by our own lusts, our passions, our pleasures, our desires. And foremost among those passions and pleasures must be the desire to exalt and to please self. That's what Paul says about life outside of Christ. Now, immediately, at least some of you, I'm sure, are asking the question, really? I mean, were were any of us really that bad? I, I know some people were that bad. Some of them are in my family. I know them personally. But but really, were, were, 
were all of us that bad? Are are, are non-Christians really that bad? I've got I've got lots of non-Christian friends. I I work with non-Christians. They don't they don't seem that bad. What we need to understand is that, that Paul isn't saying here that any of us were as bad as we could be. That full expression and full vent was given. Now, what he's pointing out is the underlying root and character of our lives outside of Christ. Left to ourselves and our own nature, we are fundamentally selfish. We are fundamentally about self. Now, now we may live very respectable lives. We may have lots of friends. But what it means to be a fallen human being is to be someone who, at the end of the day, push comes to shove, boil it right down to its essence, we serve self. You might even say we're addicted to ourselves. And once trapped in that addiction, once trapped in that that service and exaltation of self, there is no way out. And this is something that I think the world profoundly understands, even if they don't want to talk about it the way I'm talking about it. I think the world understands that at the bottom, at the root, we are all about ourselves. I mean, philosophically, we've ennobled this idea, that the the service of self, through Darwinism, the tenets of evolution. This is this is just who we are. It's it's hardwired into us. Survival of the fittest, of course, you are about self-preservation. It is your nature, philosophically. We, we, we understand that, actually, if everybody is just about exalting and serving and advancing self, that makes for a pretty miserable society. So we've tried to tame it politically through the twin meritocracies of capitalism and democracy. We've actually figured out how to monetize our selfishness. And, and drive our economy through consumerism, in which the consumer self is sovereign, and we give the self whatever it wants, and charge it as much as it's willing to pay. We've actually spiritualized our selfishness through the self-help and the, the self-improvement movements. You see, it's not just Christians that talk about the, the primacy of the self. The whole world gets this. We've built our whole culture and society and economy and politics on this idea. Bottom line, no matter how we dress it up, no matter how we explain it, no matter how we harness it to otherwise good purposes, the truth is, outside of Christ, we are all committed to serving ourselves. This is what it means to be a sinner. Not someone who does bad things, but someone whose very nature is turned in on itself to serve self. And this is why, of course, we again and again find ourselves in conflict with others. Because I'm about serving me. And I think that means you should be about serving me. But it turns out you are about serving you. And you think I should be about serving you. And conflict ensues. It's not just conflict with each other. It is this that brings us into conflict with God. 
And more than conflict with God, it earns us God's wrath, his judgment. You see, we were not made by God to serve ourselves. We were made by God to serve him. And then through him to serve others. And self-service, it doesn't even show up on the list. We've turned it all upside down. Trying to get God and trying to get others to serve us instead. And we find ourselves trapped, addicted to self. And you know what happens with an addiction? You, you know, you can't stop. You can't just stop. If you, if you stop, you die. Man, it's, it's, it's eat or be eaten out there. It's, it's used or be used out there. If I, if I just stop serving self, I'm, I'm gonna get eaten alive. I'm gonna be used by everybody. This is the way the logic of addiction goes. Of course, if I don't stop, if I don't change, I die. Because I stand under the judgment of God. It's not a good predicament. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I want to ask you, do you recognize yourself in this mirror of verse 3? That's what it's meant to be. It's, it, it's a mirror held up to all of us to see parts of ourselves that we don't like to see. Can you see yourself there? Because you understand that until you do, until you can see yourself there, there really is no hope of change. Until you can recognize that you are an addict to self, you will always be an addict to self. You will never be able to change. This is certainly one thing that the 12-step movement got right. We start by recognizing who we are. Not who we wish we were. Or like to think of ourselves as. Paul says this is who Christians used to be. And this is why we need to be reminded of who we are now. This is not who we are any longer. But, but so often, walking through the Christian life, we're like that new bride, you know, who got married and changed her last name, but keeps signing all of her checks and all the documents with her old last name. You know, you, you forget, wait, I, I've got a new identity. Well, this is us as Christians. We've been given a new identity. But we're constantly forgetting. Constantly going back to that old identity. And living there, even though in Christ that is no longer who we are. Not anymore. Why? Why are we different? Why can we say that that used to describe us, but now verses 1 and 2 describe us? Well, that's the third thing we want to look at. Why we're different. Because it's here in the why that I think our usefulness to the world finally becomes apparent. So look with me in verse 4. But, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace... We might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. 
Paul gives us in those few verses there three reasons for why we are different now as Christians. And the first reason he gives us, we are different because we have been saved by grace. We have been saved by grace. In contrast to every other religious or non-religious plan for self-improvement, Christianity teaches that there is no such thing as self-improvement. Christianity teaches that we don't change ourselves. God does. God must take the initiative. God must intervene. And this is what he does. He actually intervenes and he saves us from our old way of life. That the kindness and love of God that appeared, that Paul refers to there right at the beginning of verse 4, is Jesus Christ. He's, he's referring to the incarnation of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. As a man, Jesus Christ lived a very different life from you and me. He, he lived a, a life that was very different from what Paul just described in verse 3. As a man, Jesus Christ lived a life of peace. If, if you don't believe me, just go read the Gospels. It, it, it flows out of every single page. He lived a life of peace with the people around him. And he lived a life of peace with God. He lived a perfect life. A, a, a sinless life. A life that was not devoted to serving self at all. And, and then he took that perfect life and he offered it on the cross. As a sacrifice for addicts to self. He offered it as a, as a substitute. Bearing the judgment that we deserve. Taking from God the punishment that addicts like us should receive. It, it, Paul makes it really clear. It is, it's his righteousness. Not our good works. Not, not our righteousness. That saves us. And he goes on to make clear. that This was all grace. There, there was no reason for God to do this. No reason other than mercy. Grace is a gift. Grace is, is not wages. Grace isn't something that can be earned. It's simply something that's given. Given out of God's kindness. And given out of his love. Friends, this is why Christians are different. Not because of what we do. Not because of what we've done. But because of what he did. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the message that, that we want people to understand and then receive and believe by faith. You know, faith is not a feeling. Faith is not trying hard. Faith is not Cleaning yourself up and, and then coming to God. Faith is trust in who Jesus is and what he did for you. Faith is believing that Jesus Christ lived the life that I just described. And that he did what I said he just did. That he offered himself for you. Not, not just for people in the abstract. Not, not just for old people or, or religious people, but for you and you and you personally. This is what faith is. Trusting that Jesus Christ came to save you from God's judgment and frankly from yourself. 
and your own ruinous addiction. And what we want to say to you is, as, as Christians to non-Christians is not that we want you to join our political party, not that you, we want you to dress like us or all of a sudden start listening to the music that I listen to. No, it's that we want you to put your faith in this man who is God and to do it today, to do it right now, right where you're sitting. This is what we ask. Paul doesn't stop there. He gives us a second reason Christians are different. Christians are different because we've also been reborn and renewed by the Holy Spirit. All right, so the good news of the gospel is what I just explained, that we have been declared not guilty. Paul says justified because of what Jesus Christ did. But the good news keeps going. It it, it doesn't stop there. The good news is also That through Christ, we've been given the Holy Spirit. Who's the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Fully God. The Holy Spirit is sometimes talked about as if he's like a power or a force that we can manipulate. That's not at all the case. The Spirit is a person. The Spirit is God. And just as the Spirit hovered over the waters in Genesis 1 as the agent of creation. So Paul reminds us here that the Spirit is poured out on those who believe in Jesus Christ as the agent of recreation, making us new. The Spirit actually makes us alive with the life of Jesus Christ. We were dead spiritually in our sins. Yes, we're walking around, living and breathing, but as far as our life with God goes, Dead as a doornail. And the Spirit of God is poured out when we believe on Jesus. And he makes us alive. He renews us. He changes our nature. He, he changes our old nature, which was like verse 3, and, and makes it new. Renewing us so that our new nature is like verses 1 and 2. Things change when we come to Christ in the gospel. Our desires change. Our, our ambitions change. Our, our character changes, not through self-improvement, but through spirit-empowered renewal. Through the spirit, God actually changes us from being people at war to being people at peace with God and with those around us. Friend, if you're not a Christian, this is why we don't tell you to change yourself and come to God. This is why all we ask is that you put your faith in Christ Turn away from your old way and instead now trust in God. He will do the rest. He'll do the changing. I don't need to get you to change first. You don't need to try to change first. You can't. But he can. Now, this also means that if you're here this morning and you've always thought of yourself as a Christian. But you don't experience this newness of life. This change of heart. Then maybe this morning you need to consider. That you're not a Christian after all. Because this is who Christians are. Christians are those who have been given a new nature. Christians are those who have been born again. Christians are those who have been changed. Maybe you've been carrying around the label of Christian without without the reality of Christian. And honestly, I can't think of anything more miserable than that. 
that's going to feel like a lot of law, a lot of regulation, a lot of do, do, do. Friend, if that's you, then, then maybe it's time to get rid of the pretend label of Christian and become a Christian today. Don't, don't stand on some decision you made years ago. Don't, don't stand on something that your mom and your dad told you was true about you. Now today, repent, put your faith in Christ, and finally know what it means to be what for many years you thought you were, but could never seem to live up to. As Christians, we need to understand that this change, this, this renewal is both instantaneous and progressive, and we see both of those things in these verses. On, on the one hand, when God saves us, he renews us. He makes us new, full stop, period, new nature, and that's verse 5. But the reality is that new nature that we've been given is born on a battlefield, a battlefield of sin, the battlefield of this world. And so that new nature has got to grow, it's got to be trained, it's got to be strengthened. That's verses 1 and verses 8. We need to be reminded of who we now are so that, verse 8, we will be devoted to doing what is good. We'll be devoted to doing what, what we should do. Now, now, we can't grow unless we're born again. But if we've been born again, we must and we will grow. That's the nature of things that are alive. Dead things stay the same or actually decay. But living things grow. Regeneration, being given this new nature, and sanctification, growing in this new nature, are distinct but inseparable works of the Holy Spirit. Now, we need to keep the order right. We can't grow until we've been born. The, the imperative to do good is not a condition for salvation. It's the result of salvation. But we also need to keep the connection between the two very tight a renewed life will devote itself to doing good because, because that's its nature. How, how can you grow in this? How, how can you devote yourself to doing what is good? Well, well, let me suggest that if you're a believer, maybe the first place to start, if, if you, you find yourself not really devoting yourself to, to what is good, maybe start by looking at what you are devoting yourself to. Maybe you need to, to clear some space in your life. So that devotion to what is good can grow up. I, I've spent um, the last number of Saturdays digging up dandelions out of my yard. Any of you that have a yard know, know what that's like. And I learned something about dandelions. I didn't know this until I really got down in the dirt, up close and intimate with them. As I tried to yank them out of my grass. The way they spread their leaves really flat against the ground prevents the good grass from growing. It actually prevents the good grass from growing. It's not like they're just happily floating on top of the good grass. No, they're, they're crowding out the grass. Do you want to devote yourself to what is good? Do you want good grass growing in your life? Don't see enough of it there? Maybe start by pulling some dandelions. Right? Maybe start by figuring out what you are devoted to that you shouldn't be and yanking that out 
and then begin to see what the new nature produces and fills in in its place. We're different because we've been saved by grace. We're different because we've been renewed by the Spirit. Paul points to one more reason that we're different. And that's third, we're different because we've been made heirs of eternal life. Heirs of eternal life. Adam and Eve rejected God and his word because at the end of the day, they wanted to provide a kingdom for themselves. That's what selfishness is all about. Serving self, building our own kingdom, providing our own hope for the future. It's fundamentally the attitude of an orphan, the attitude of someone who does not have a loving father to provide for them. An orphan is not an heir. An orphan, almost by definition, has no future except the future he provides for himself or herself. But as Christians, we are no longer orphans. We've been adopted into God's family. We, we have been made the children of God. We're, we're not God's foster children. You know, in the family for a while, but no permanent place. We're, we're not slaves and servants in the household. No, we're children. And as children, heirs. Heirs of God, heirs of his kingdom. And friends, that changes everything. If I am an heir of the kingdom of God, then I don't have to be at war with everyone around me for a bigger slice of the pie here. I don't have to be at war with every authority that's placed over me, worried that they're going to take it all away from me because I know I'm an heir of God. I have a place in his family that cannot be taken away. I have a place in his kingdom that is secure for all eternity. And that life, that eternal life, has been secured for me by Jesus Christ. It's been poured out on me through the Spirit, and someday it will be fully and forever mine. Because God has made me his child. And friends, if our future is secure, then our present is different. Our present is radically different. So so let me ask you, what, what is your hope today? What are you hoping in? You know, if it's anything in this world, if it's anything in this life, your hope is insecure. It is insecure. And you're going to have to fight for it in order to keep it because somebody is trying to take it away from you. And in the end, you're going to lose. Because this life is a zero-sum life. This world is a zero-sum world. And death makes losers of all of us. But if your hope is eternal life with God, if your identity is an heir of the kingdom of God because of Jesus Christ, not an orphan, but an heir, then friend, your hope is secure and peace begins right now. Relationships change right now. Life changes now. This is why Christians are different. This is why we're no longer the way we were, not because of what we do, not because of what we've done, not not because we've tried hard or worked hard or been really good, not because of what we're going to do. We're different because of what God has done. Past tense, 
at the cross. We're different because of what God is doing right now, present tense, through the Spirit. We're different because of what God will do someday when he brings us home to heaven and Jesus is recognized as Lord of all. He has saved us. He is renewing us and he has made us heirs. This is why we're different, friends. And this is what makes us useful. This is what makes us profitable to all men. Not finally our good deeds, not not the hospitals that we've built, not the justice that we've championed, not the good deeds that we've done, that we should be doing all of those things. When Paul says in verse 8 that these things are profitable to all men, he's referring not to what we've done, but to what God has done. He's, he's referring to who we are because of what God has done and is doing and will do. When Doug Wilson answered Christopher Hitchens' critique, he summed it up this way. Christians do not claim that the gospel has made the world better by bringing us turbocharged ethical information. The world is made better by good news. The gift of forgiveness and the resultant ability to live more in conformity to a standard we already knew but could not meet. Christian, the best thing we can do for the world is to be Christians. And so be visible displays of the good news that God appeared in kindness in the person of Jesus Christ to save sinners. And to change us from what we were to who we are now and who will not stop until we finally are what we should be forever. Christian, you're useful to the world because you're a signpost of hope. Not that we can change the world. But that God does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would cause us to be who we are in Christ. We pray that that would transform our relationships to this world. And as a result, we pray that more would come to know, even today, come to know what it means that God saves sinners. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.